This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Marin McKenna. Marin is a columnist, an award-winning independent journalist, and an author who specialises in public health, global health, and food policy. She's a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University and the author of the 2017 bestseller, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, which was released here in the UK in February this year as Plucked, the Truth About Chicken. Her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When the Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore, has been viewed more than one and a half million times and translated into 33 languages. And it's actually how I first came across Marin, uh, and I really I recommend it to anybody listening to this podcast who hasn't watched that go and do so. It's fascinating stuff. Um, we've been emailing back and forth for nearly six months, I think, uh, to try and arrange this conversation. And she's making time to sit down with me during the two days that she's in the UK with a very packed schedule. So I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a huge pleasure to say, Marin, welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being so patient while we work this out. I'm glad to be here. It's, no, I'm very, very pleased that we can we can sit down and do this. Um, I thought I'd like to ask you um, about the approach to the issues that we're going to talk about in different countries. So you, you're somebody who spends quite a bit of time travelling back and forth, I think, between between the US and Europe, uh, the UK and, and sort of Europe more widely. Um, I suppose the question I was wondering, are the conversations that you're having in these different places the same? Actually, they are. So, so to sort of, you know, draw the envelope of this issue, um, my interest and, and the subject of this book, Plucked or Big Chicken, is the question of how we came to give antibiotics routinely to most of the meat animals on the planet. Mm. And how it is that in doing that, we created the modern meat system. And I think anyone who cares about food at this point understands that there are a lot of questions legitimately being asked about how it is that we grow meat animals. And, and can we do that better for, for a number of definitions of better, better in terms of better welfare for the animals, um, more protection for the environment, healthier meat for us, but also addressing questions of um, how much can, what sort of cost will we accept for meat? What, what will we accept as a, a, a reasonable price for meat? And if we are not careful about pricing, you know, are we creating a multi-layered meat system where there's good meat for some people and less good meat for others? So varieties of that conversation, I find, are happening in the US, in Canada, in the UK, pretty much across Europe, and really in most of the developing world as well. Mm. Um, the, it's funny to, to sit here in England and talk about this story because Britain is really sort of the hero of the, the story of antibiotic use in agriculture in its early days. It, it was the first government to oppose routine antibiotic use in agriculture and passed a law to that effect, but then kind of fell off from that in the subsequent decades. The United States just finally got regulation on this matter. Um, about 18 months ago now, after waiting for decades. There's been regulation in Europe for more than a decade now. And in the developing world, different countries are approaching this issue in different ways with different degrees of alacrity as to whether they're going to do something about it or not. So there are very few places where, very few societies, very few governments where this issue is not being addressed or thought of. And the reason for that is that the question of antibiotic use in agriculture is not only a question of how we get the meat that we eat. It's also a question of to what degree are we generating antibiotic-resistant bacteria mm -hmm. by raising meat animals in that manner. And it's pretty universally acknowledged at this point that antibiotic-resistant bacteria are a global health crisis. The former secretary of the, the United Nations actually said in September 2016 that antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance, as some people call it, is, quote, the greatest and most urgent global risk, unquote. 
And here in the UK, the chief medical officer, Professor Dame Sally Davies, has said that resistance is as serious a threat to society as terrorism. Mm. So as all these societies and governments think about how we're raising meat and how we're going to to deal with the routine use of antibiotics, they're also really looking downstream to to what degree are they threatening their citizens by failing to change the system. Mm. The um, Just to go back to sort of the title of the book, you've got two versions, and I suppose that's where slightly where that question came from. I was thinking, do you, you know, is it just a question of marketing and, and sort of reaching an audience, or is, is it actually the the content has to be tailored in a certain way, even between sort of similar, similarly developed countries in the West, say. So one reason, the, the, the simple reason why the book has different titles in different countries mm. um, is that it's different publishers. Right. So I have a publisher for North America and then a publisher for um, the United Kingdom and most of the rest of the world. Um, the, the contract is a little complicated. Okay. And so in some places, it is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. In some places, it's Big Chicken with a subtitle in the local language that's mm-hmm. happening in Italy, okay. and in some places, it's plucked the truth about chicken. I have to say, I like plucked. <laughs> For whatever <laughs> reason, it kind of works. It's, 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 yeah. It has a slightly naughty it does, tinge. Yeah, yeah my, my book editor in the, in the US and I actually flirted with the title clucked at one point, okay. but we were shot down by the marketing people. Right. So that we got plucked back in the UK is actually very satisfying to me. But, but more fundamentally than it just being a, a question of different companies with different marketing arms. The difference in the titles does to some extent um, address or allow for the fact that people are going to be reading this book in different contexts in different countries. You know, The United States, where uh, the latter part of the history in the book is based, is a place that held antibiotic regulation for agriculture at bay for almost exactly 40 years because of political pressure by veterinary pharma and by the agricultural industry, we had effectively no curbs on antibiotic use in agriculture. In England, the United Kingdom, um, the, the European Union, the, you know, different things were done by different countries before the European Union itself existed. But very broadly, the European Union has had a complete ban on what are called growth promoter antibiotics since the first day of 2006, so for more than a decade. And so it was important in in putting the book into these different markets to acknowledge that people were going to be coming at it with a different background. In the United States, it's a completely new subject to many people. In Europe and the UK, some of this may be familiar to people and the legal background is different, but but even though those histories are different on opposite sides of the Atlantic, there is an overarching question about the use of antibiotics in meat animals that is the same, which is that though Europe and now latterly the US have banned what's called growth promoter antibiotics, giving tiny doses to animals in order to make them put on muscle weight more quickly, There are very few societies in the world that have banned the larger preventive use of antibiotics, which is feeding antibiotics routinely to animals so that they can be held in very crowded conditions in barns and feedlots. That's still legal in the United States. It's still legal in the United Kingdom. It's still legal in almost all of Europe, except for a couple of countries that have taken more concerted action. And it's certainly still legal in all of the developing world. So... So it felt safe to bring the book out around the world because even though some of the regulatory questions are different in different societies, there's an overarching big question that's the same for the entire globe. Mm. With them, um, just not to sort of to labor the point of the differences, but the, when, when you're looking at the developing world, say, versus the uh, sort of the West broadly uh, defined, if you've got, you know, China... I suppose becoming this enormous market, um, and and lots of other sort of areas of the world moving towards more meat eating generally, and sort of you know the, these issues becoming more pressing there as well. Do you um, is there is there a sense sort of similar to 
to the arguments that you hear with, uh, say, climate change, that these are uh, the West, the developed nations, they've reaped the benefits of these practices. And now it's not fair in some sense to, to, to demand that, you know, having had the benefit, now nobody, nobody carries these on anymore. Mm, it's a really perspicacious question because I, I think of this often as being like climate change for a couple of different reasons. First, because the problem of antibiotic resistance is so enormous that anything that any one of us might do to try to ameliorate it feels so insignificant in comparison. You know, it's like looking at one of those pictures of the, the polar bears teetering on the tiny, tiny ice flow and then going and buying a different kind of light bulb. You know, it feels so insufficient in response. However, if all of us collectively bought the right kind of light bulb, we might in fact make a difference. But the other way, as, as you allude to, the other way in which this is like climate change is that the, the industrialized West and the global South are in very different positions around this question of antibiotic use and how they're going to organize their agriculture. You know, I, I feel that much as with carbon emissions, the West is saying to the South, you know, those refrigerators we had and those gas guzzlers and those big juicy steaks, we really made a mistake. And we would like you not to make that mistake if you don't mind. And, and the Global South is saying back to the West quite appropriately, well, wait a minute. You know, we want the big juicy steaks and the gas guzzling Chevys or the equivalent and, and the big fancy refrigerators. We don't agree to forego that step in our social emergence in order to make you feel better about the mistakes that you made. And so this question of how can the West and the South work together to if not eliminate, then at least reduce the risk of this global problem without interfering in questions of national sovereignty and taking away from the South things that it feels it is entitled to is, is still a really live and sticky question. Mm. That, that said, um, there are individual countries really making strides. By no means is the global South monolithic in this question of antibiotic use in agriculture and curbing antibiotic resistance. There certainly are societies, Brazil, India, where antibiotic use is very, very minimally controlled. But in China, for instance, which is becoming the world's dominant agricultural power, and also close at or close to being the, um, the number one producer and consumer of antibiotics on the planet, the Chinese central government was so embarrassed a few years ago by news that uh, a particular highly resistant bacterium had been spotted in its agriculture in people, pigs, and retail pork simultaneously and was spreading around the globe and associated with China that to, to reduce that national embarrassment, to take that taint away, they identified one particular very precious to medicine drug that was being freely used in Chinese agriculture, and they simply took it off the market. They just, just banned it. It's, called, it's a drug called colistin. It's one of the last resort drugs in, in medicine. And China simply said 8,000 tons of that drug is no longer available to our farmers. That's a very different kind of action than some of the developing nations are taking. And it's really encouraging that a nation that we still have to consider as being a developing economy is able to take bold steps like that. So I wonder if we could sort of talk a little bit about antibiotic resistance in general. Because mm -hmm. we've, you know, just to... Define our terms. Define our terms a little bit and just, just sort of make a bit clear for, for any, anybody who's heard, you know, heard a few terms dropped in there might be you know, not entirely clear. Antibiotic, I suppose maybe first, how does, how does bacteria become resistant to antibiotics sure. in, in just sort of general? So terms. the interesting thing about antibiotics is that they begin as natural compounds. And what they really are, to, to be incredibly reductionist, is they're essentially chemical weapons that bacteria aimed at each other long before we came along. The purpose of these chemical compounds was to allow bacteria to compete with each other for living space, for sources of nutrition, 
for, for space into which their descendant bacteria could expand. One bacterium manufactures a compound, emits it with the intention of disabling or killing essentially rival bacteria. I mean, when I describe this, it sounds like they have agency and purpose, and they don't actually have agency and purpose. They have evolution and natural selection, but, but work with me here. Okay. <laughs> it's very hard to talk about bacteria in this context and not be sort of anthropomorphic about it. Mm. So the way that bacteria protected themselves against in, in those conflicts is they physically changed something in their makeup. So let's say that one bacterium manufactures a, a compound that latches onto another bacterium in such a way that when that bacterium is going to divide and make two daughter bacteria, the compound sent by the rival bacterium prevents the new cell wall from closing. So that instead of making two complete daughter bacteria, both of those bacteria in the making explode and die. Or a rival bacterium might create a compound that dives inside the cell wall of the bacterium and scrambles the genetic material inside it. So what the bacteria receiving the attack did in response, in the case of the the compound that interfered with the, the structure of new, making new cell wall, it changed the way that it made the cell wall and changed the, physically changed the spot on the cell wall where that compound would have attached so the compound couldn't attach anymore. In the case of the, the compound diving inside a bacterium, the bacterium receiving the attack evolved little pumps that physically toss that compound back out of the cell again. They're called efflux pumps. I think of them as being like bouncers in a nightclub, tossing the bad actors out into the street. So all of that was going on with these natural compounds that bacteria were aiming at each other for millennia. Mm. And then we come on the scene. And um, through you know the, the random chance of science of Alexander Fleming working in his laboratory at, at St. Mary's uh, Hospital in in the center of London, um, we discover antibiotics. And what antibiotics are, are those chemical weapon compounds of bacteria. So we took those natural compounds, took them into the lab, you know, reproduced and refined them, and then sent them back out again as weapons against disease bacteria. And maybe it was naive of us, but we never expected, really, that bacteria would react to our attack in the same way that they reacted to their, the attacks of their fellows for all those millennia, which is that when we sent antibiotics against bacteria, bacteria evolved physical defenses that kept those compounds we were sending at them from doing the damage they were intended to do. Those changes that bacteria make to protect themselves, that's what antibiotic resistance is. And it's... It's something you sort of you go into a lot of detail about in the book, and I have to say I hadn't really understood the fact that um, that resistance really sort of is part and parcel of of the equation. It kind of comes hand in hand with it. I'd, can the emergence of resistance only ever be slowed down? Can it actually be stopped under any conditions? So it probably can't be stopped because it's an, an inevitable natural process. But what we did in the way that we misused antibiotics was we speeded the process up. I mean, it, it, resistance, resistance and the, the, um, the, you know, the, the evolution of resistance and then the evolution of fresh compounds to get over the defenses of resistance, this, this, this game of leapfrog between, between bacteria and compound would always have gone on. But once we achieved and synthesized antibiotics, what we did in agriculture and also in medicine was to expose bacteria, specifically disease bacteria, to these compounds at a much greater and faster rate than they would have experienced in the natural world. So we accelerated the development of resistance by putting out so many antibiotics out there, by you know, using them for the wrong thing in medicine, using them when no infection is present, giving them to animals when animals are not sick. 
And all of that meant that we kind of, we sped up the clock on resistance's emergence and we sped it up far beyond our ability to catch up. I suppose you're giving it chance after chance to evolve all of the all of the various defenses that right but it is yeah. though um you know someone will swap me down for this because it's not a very good metaphor but it's as you know it's as though we were sort of giving them like you know five hour energy drinks time after time after time yeah. it's like here a little bacteria race ahead um no we shouldn't have done that what's the worst that could happen yeah <laughs> um i do want to sort of move move on into kind of antibiotics and food sort of in in, in just a moment but i was going to ask you about um i suppose Still, just staying with antibiotic resistance generally, the um, is is quite clearly you know one of the most serious challenges that we face. That seems to be more and more recognised. And you you mentioned the the uh, declaration of the UN General Assembly and the greatest and most urgent global risk we face. It was also the the first line of the World Health Organization's global action plan on antimicrobial resistance said it threatens the very core of modern medicine and the sustainability of an effective global public health response to the enduring threat from infectious disease which you know really it couldn't be much clearer um i was just wondering do you ever when you're talking to people about um about this issue trying to sort of explain to them the scale and the seriousness do you encounter skepticism and you know, resistance of that, resistance from people. To right, psychological that, resistance, psychological not resistance. antibiotic resistance. No, I, I mean, do, and and it's really very understandable. Because if you think about it, so a moment ago we talked about Alexander Fleming, you know, <laughs> staring at that, that Petri dish in St. Mary's Hospital and discovering that a, a mold had landed on it that was excreting something that was killing the bacteria on the plate. Mm. That was in 1928. Penicillin becomes that the, the the compound that was being excreted was raw penicillin, and penicillin is made into a drug and rolled out in the world for the first time in about 1943. Its its first wide scale uses on the battlefields of World War II, and then as the war ends, it becomes a thing available to civilians. And and very rapidly, the other foundational drugs of the antibiotic era, streptomycin and chloramphenicol and the tetracyclines, they all get here by 1950. Well, what that means is that all of us were born within the antibiotic era, right? We have never experienced a time when infections were not something minor that we could cure quickly. And therefore, it's really very natural for people to not take this seriously because they don't understand how bad it could be. But if you went back to, say, our grandparents or possibly our great-grandparents, if any of them are around, I mean, I my grandmother was born before 1943, um, and I vividly remember when I was a kid that she was absolutely obsessed with cleanliness to a degree that I found completely annoying. You know, she she always wanted to know if I washed my hands. She scrubbed my family's townhouse in New York from top to bottom practically every day. She was terrified of dirt. And it wasn't really until I started researching antibiotic resistance that I realized that in my grandmother's um, what I thought were her very extreme attitudes was actually a very reasonable reaction to a world in which the slightest injury could cause your death. Because what she was really afraid of was not so much dirt. It was that you would injure yourself through the dirt and start an infection that couldn't be cured. And that's what used to happen in the pre-antibiotic era. But no one practically no one alive today experienced that firsthand and therefore it's not something that's really in our imaginations even. It's in my imagination because I went back and I found the accounts of what happened to people before antibiotics arrived and that is that you know if you scratched or cut yourself they might have to cut your arm off to keep the infection from moving into your circulatory system and causing sepsis pneumonia killed 3 children out of every 10 one in 100 women used to die in childbirth um the, the person who got the very first doses of penicillin given to a human was a british constable named albert alexander and he was devastatingly ill with staph and strep. He, he had lesions all over his face and body, and they oozed disgustingly, and his doctors had to take out one of his eyes. And what had happened to him to make him so sick is he went into his back garden and he scratched his face on a rose bush. And that caused his death. 
because they had made just enough penicillin to give him the drug for five days. And for five days, he got better. And then it turns out penicillin was actually kind of hard to make, and they ran out of drug, and he died. And so when I hear people say, oh, antibiotic resistance is a thing they don't really think about very much, I, you know, I think about people like Albert Alexander. Um, there's a story in my own family, my, my grandfather's younger brother, my great uncle, died of a very minor injury in 1938 that became an overwhelming in infection. That was three years before Albert Alexander got those first doses. And, and those are the kind of things we face if, if we allow resistance to burgeon it's to the point where it takes away antibiotics. Just, I think it was last week from, from when we're talking, Professor Dame Sally Davies, the chief medical officer of the UK, said that if resistance cannot be gotten under control, we will lose the ability to do cesarean sections how much more fundamental a threat to, to medicine and to how we organize society could there be than that? It, it is a hard thing to, to sort of think about as somebody who's, you know, grown up with that as a, a, these things as a given and that, you know, the, the thought that science and technology progresses in a sort of right. ever upward direction. I mean, we just of, don't, we're never very good. I mean, sort of humans, we're not very good at, at accurately assessing risk. Um, and, uh, and also, we tend not to want to think about threats too much because they're depressing, right? But I myself think that antibiotics really created most of what we think of as our modern life. They gave us the confidence to go around doing relatively risky things with, with safety. I mean, how many, you know, every Christmas, people put ladders up against their houses and climb them to hang their Christmas lights. And they might well scratch themselves on the roof tiles or lose their balance and fall backward and break a leg. That is safe because of antibiotics. Kids slide across turf playing soccer. They slide across turf playing baseball. They scratch themselves up. That is safe because of antibiotics. You know, giving, installing um, pumps to give insulin automatically to type 1 diabetics, putting stents into blood vessels after strokes to hold them open, that is only possible because of antibiotics. There's a, a, there was a recent, um, uh, just a couple of years ago, a paper in the British Medical Journal that said that if you think of this wave of baby boomers who were the first people to, you know, to jog seriously, um, lots of baby boomers now need artificial hips and knees because they beat themselves up running. Without antibiotics, one out of every six recipients of artificial hips would die of infection. Really? So any, any sort of surgery, anything that involves opening up exactly. the body becomes... Things that we only learned to do in the 19th century could be not available to us again. And there was, I think, um, I read uh, Sally Davis's piece recently, but there's, there was another thing I saw recently. I think the UK's seen the first case of super gonorrhea. I think it was, they, yes. they called it, so, you know, resistant to all, all... To everything. To everything. So, and that's, so this is here. That's this is not, bizarre, because no. gonorrhea, I think... I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was growing up, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, except for HIV, were kind of treated as a joke. You know, they were a thing that you sort of risked, but they were very minor because you could take drugs for them and they'd be gone. I mean, I think I probably even knew people when I was at university who sort of thought of them as a kind of badge of honor, you know, mm. gone out and been a bit wild and look what happened. Well, as it, in, in some sense, antibiotics were first developed, or part of the pressure for developing antibiotics was precisely because sexually transmitted diseases ha had such a profound effect on the readiness of armies. That in, in World War II and World War I in the U.S. Army, thousands and thousands of men were taken out of active service because they had such advanced cases of either syphilis or gonorrhea that they were not available to do their military duty. Um, and therefore, once the uh, once antibiotics became available, they were very, very welcomed by the military. So that's another way in which when we lose the protection of antibiotics, things that we thought of as minor, as we think of like scratches as minor and, and operations as minor, we think of STDs as minor and they're not going to be minor anymore. Well, I suppose when something's so so pervasive and underpins so much it's very hard to to even kind of conceptualize what would happen 
if it wasn't there. That's well, I hope all you know. I hope all we have to do is imagine it, and that we don't get there. But I get increasingly nervous. So the, uh, I think we've we've kind of um, explained I think pretty well just how serious it is and could be. There's, we touched quite a bit, um, or started to talk a bit about food, how food plays into all of this, and really I suppose the reason that, that we are talking on you know this sort of podcast about food. Um, when we get sick, we might take a course of antibiotics. Um, you know, if a farm animal gets sick, it, the same might happen. You know, as, as you said. Um, but you explained in the book this treatment is it's only part of the story and not even the largest part of it. You know, the f- four times as many antibiotics in America are used in farming as in human medicine, which I thought was quite a shocking. It's a completely shocking it, statistic, it is. I mean, and that actually coming across that statistic. Uh, is one of the things that impelled me to write this book because I had been for a couple of years interested in the topic of antibiotic resistance. I wrote an earlier book called Superbug about the rise of MRSA. And in that project, you know, I met so many people who'd had devastating infections and parents of children who died of drug-resistant infections. And those families and researchers and doctors were all saying to me, look where we are with resistance. Antibiotics are precious. They're, they are a thing that needs to be conserved. They, they underpin our lives and we must save them. And then I run across this statistic that we are using more than 30 million tons of antibiotics in the United States in livestock every year. And most of those livestock are not sick. That was the shocking thing. I mean, I thought first, oh, how could all those cattle and pigs be so sick that they need that much antibiotic? And it turns out we use them to put tasty flesh on them and we use them to protect them against the, um, the conditions of crowding in barns and feedlots but we're not giving them because of infection. And if we did that in humans, we would call that inappropriate use and we would stop. But we've allowed it to go on in in agriculture since the late 1940s. It's shocking as a statistic, just as a figure on its own, 80% of, of the total usage being in agriculture, it sort of, it really does make you stop and sit up and question it. And, and, and if you were to give, human children antibiotics every day of their life for without any sign of infection you'd think that was that made no sense at all so maybe you could sort of break down a little bit how they are how are they used in farming sure, sure. And, and sort of how do we get to that so i'm sorry to say that it's actually a brit who's um to blame for this oh, sorry. so the story goes uh there there was a biologist named thomas jukes who, who was born in the UK, emigrated to Canada, and then sort of made his way to the United States. And he was a specialist in the dietary needs of chickens. Uh, and in the mid-1940s, he fetched up at a company based outside New York City uh, called Letterly Laboratories. And this company happened to be making the very first of the tetracycline class of antibiotics, a drug called oreomycin or chlorotetracycline. So they were, this company is part of that, that first bloom of antibiotics coming on the market after penicillin is licensed. So they're making that drug and Jukes is coming to this company at, at a kind of unique time in history. Because what the end of World War II represents is not just uh, sort of a, the, the first flush of enthusiasm over the power of antibiotics. It's also a moment when the food system is profoundly damaged, partly by the damage of the war. So if you think about it, of course, you know it becomes sort of um, intuitively obvious that battles would have rolled across farm fields and flocks and herds would have been either seized by armies or, or, you know, possibly like accidentally bombed by armies. And even fishing fleets had been co-opted by national navies in order to provide extra boats when, when, you know, navy boats were sunk. So the means of making food is injured as a result of the war and needs to be built up, which is costly. At the same time, in the the societies that were not excessively damaged by the war, which includes the U.S. and the U.K., um, there is this paradoxical situation that 
all those armies needed to be fed. And so there had been this great um, scale-up in the infrastructure of food production. And when the war ended, that guaranteed market went away. So on the one hand, there's this system that's very damaged and needs to be restored. On the other hand, there's a system simultaneously that's overextended, that, that, and there's not a lot of capital around to keep it from collapsing. And what all of that adds up to is that food production after the war begins this very intense search for how to, how to cut costs, how to save money. And, and Thomas Jukes is part of that. Because what livestock producers do is, is as part of that search of, for saving money, is they start giving animals cheaper feed. So in the case of chickens, for instance, chickens in the United States used to be fed um, uh, small fish, herrings and pilchards and so forth, uh, anchovies. Um, they were um, fished off the, the southern California coast in the area that John Steinbeck's novel Cannery Row is about. After the war, producers switched to grain-based feed for the first time, soy and wheat and corn and so forth. But that doesn't have in it the full nutrition that, um, that animal protein has. And so producers and scientists went in search of how could they supplement that cheap feed, but how could they supplement it inexpensively because of this overarching pressure to keep costs down. So Jukes, this specialist in the dietary needs of chickens who works for an antibiotic manufacturer, is tasked with finding a cheap supplement. And he sets up an experiment in the fall of 1948. He buys a bunch of baby chicks and he divides them up into groups. It's actually a classic experimental design where he keeps one group as a control group. And then to each of the other groups, he gives a different supplement. Synthetic vitamins, cod liver oil, brewer's yeast, and to one of the groups, he gives the dried, ground-up remains of the manufacturing of his company's antibiotic, which is a lot sort of like what's left over after making beer, you know, sort of a sticky mass of carbohydrate that the good stuff has been taken out of. The way you make an antibiotic is actually a lot like the way you make beer. And when he goes to weigh all those chicks... On Christmas Day, 1948, he does it himself because he's given his lab tech the day off for the holiday. He discovers that the chicks that got the antibiotic have gained more weight than any other chick in the experiment. And the stuff that they got was stuff that his company was about to throw away. So this is literally money for nothing, right? This is, this is um, taking out of the garbage a thing that is profoundly going to change the lives of meat animals. And within five years, um, Jukes figures out that what's going on is that there are tiny doses of the antibiotic left in the waste. And within five years, American farmers are giving their livestock 500,000 pounds of antibiotics a year. And as we, we talked about earlier, it's now over 30 million pounds a year. And this practice propagates incredibly quickly around the globe. Because what it means is that you can raise animals either on less feed for the same amount of time or on the same amount of feed and get them to market weight faster. So maybe you can do one more flock of chickens in the year, or you know another 500 hogs, or another 100 cattle. Suddenly, for no more expenditure, you're getting a lot more animal flesh. And that proves incredibly compelling. You just mentioned this is across the meat industry. So you, you know this applies to to cattle, to, to pork, to, to chickens as well. And so these first experiments were on chicken. Why, why did, I suppose, why did it um, lend itself so well to this whole process? And why, why did you pick chicken particularly? Was it just to sort of, to kind of hone in on, on one particular story? Or is that the archetype story? So this? because chickens are the, the animals in Jukes' first experiment, they really, in a way, are responsible for what happens to agriculture afterward. They kind of bracket the whole story of misusing antibiotics in agriculture because chickens are the first animals to receive what came to be called growth promoter antibiotics. Um, so chick and chickens, therefore, eventually kind of teach the rest of meat agriculture how to misuse antibiotics. But in the United States, and the book is based partly in the U.S., it turns out that chicken may be the first sort of sector of the protein economy 
that is turning away from routine antibiotic use because even before we got these new partial regulations in 2017, several major poultry companies in the U.S., led by the company Purdue, um, announced they were going antibiotic-free on their own, probably, I, I believe, as a result of profound consumer pressure. So I, I think that, that consumers in the United States led our market to change in the absence of the kind of regulation that already existed in the UK and in Europe. And, and now a significant portion of the poultry sector in the US is antibiotic-free. So, so chickens kind of nicely bracket this story. They're there at the beginning and they're there at, if not the end, then at the major inflection point we're at now. You went, you went into a lot of detail. I mean, you just, you just touched on it sort of then the early days of antibiotics in farming, how the scene was set, you know, the post-war backdrop um, and this sort of desire for abundance. And, you know, and there's more detail on all of that in the book uh, for, for the people listening. Um, and also this, this belief that sort of the antibiotics were a general good. You describe um, acronising as a process in there, which is... Quite, quite a thing that I suggest uh, just people go and uh, research a little bit. But um, I was just going to say, I, I sort of sense quite a lot of um, sympathy, I think, from you for, for the people in those days, understanding at least of the sort of situation they were in, uh, that there were sort of good intentions. That's exactly right. Um, and that, that also makes this a more interesting and complicated story, yeah. right? That there are no... Well, very few obvious villains. I mean, as the story rolls along, there may in fact be, you know, the, the, the pure desire for profit on the part of certain of the veterinary pharma companies may come as close as anybody gets to villainy. But in the beginning, there very clearly is the sense that, that this hope for feeding the world, particularly feeding the world with inexpensive protein. And, you know, that I think we know what a seductive hope that is because we're still talking about this question, right? I mean, today, if you raise any question about the conduct of our food production systems, the, the immediate pushback you will get is, but what about the coming 10 billion? You know, we are going to have a 10 billion person planet and how are we going to feed them? And the answer usually is, we need to feed them with the most industrialized food production that we can manage. And what I hope I've laid out uh, is that there are ways of feeding the world in which we don't, we don't immediately have to go to the wall with industrialization, that there are ways to walk back from that and consider the way we, we um, raise food and grow food and choices we can make about things within that process that are more and less safe for us. Gee, you said there's there's no sort of clear villainy, and I just I just sort of discussions around food they quite often get a very impassioned response, and you know it's very often quite quickly an us versus them sort of a sort of a feeling, um, <clears throat> particularly around uh, things like sort of large scale production of animals. You know, it's, it's very emotive, and I I just thought it was really interesting. I thought it was sort of a, gave a sort of balance to the book, but I was wondering, do you do you think that there was a point where um, it started with good intentions, but you know, there's, there's this mounting evidence there is the you know of animal welfare, if nothing else, and obviously sort of more recently, sort of antibiotic resistance. Although it seems like that was known about to some degree from very early on. Was there a? Do you think there was any clear point where um, people were having to? be willfully blind to, oh, yes. to pursue it. Absolutely. Um, and I, there are probably points like that in each of the countries that dealt with this, but I think the clearest example is actually what happens in the United States. So to backtrack a little bit, um, I mentioned earlier that England was the first society to regulate this practice. Um, there was a, a, a really, in the late 1960s, a really profound and shocking outbreak of drug-resistant E. coli, which is a foodborne organism, in the town of Middlesbrough in Yorkshire. And 15 children died. And that was so shocking. And it was one, it was the last of several drug-resistant foodborne outbreaks that all occurred in a short period of time. And, you know, if you think of it, drug-resistant foodborne bacteria is a thing that had never before existed in the world. So it was quite shocking that this happened. And in response in particular to the Middlesbrough outbreak, um, the, the government here in the UK commissioned a study, came down to us as the Swan Commission after the... Um, 
the the last name of its chair, Michael Swan, who went on to be the chairman of the BBC later. Um, they studied the issue for two years, issued the Swan Report in 1969, and recommended that growth promoters not be allowed in England, in the UK. And somewhat to everyone's surprise, that was supported by Parliament. And so in 1971, England became the Britain became the first place to ban growth promoters from agriculture. So the United States was watching this, and and what was going on at the same time was um, that there was a, a, a political turnover in the United States in the early 1970s, and we got Jimmy Carter, still a fairly famous uh, uh, president, who at the time was a very earnest young reformer and hauled a crew of earnest young reformers with him to Washington, D.C. One of them was his new FDA commissioner, who was a, a scientist named Donald Kennedy, who later went on to be the president of Stanford University. And Kennedy went into the FDA and immediately declared that he was going to take away the licenses for using antibiotics as growth promoters that had been granted to drug companies at this point now, 25 years before. And he, he declared that he was going to summon the manufacturers to a hearing at the FDA to show if their products were safe, and he believed they could not show that, and therefore it was a, you know, a certainty that the licenses would be taken away. But powerful congressmen with agricultural interests behind them blocked Kennedy from ever having that hearing. They told the Carter White House that if the hearing went ahead, they would hold hostage the entire budget of the FDA. And the Carter White House had a lot of other reforms in mind, and so they told their new commissioner to back down, and the hearing never happened. And, and the licenses for agricultural antibiotics were therefore never taken away. That is absolutely a moment at which politics and greed overcome science and the public good. And it sets the stage for this real stalemate between agriculture and pharma and science and public health that in the United States goes on until 2017. I am sure there were moments like that in other countries that dealt with this, but I don't think there's anywhere else in, the, in this story where the opposing forces become so clear. And remember at the time, this is in the 1970s, the United States was the world's dominant agricultural power. So for that to happen in the most agriculturally productive nation in the world really set the stage for how agricultural antibiotic use was going to be held up as, as a, a positive thing that could be safely installed in other societies as their agriculture turned to industrialization. It's a grave mistake that we're still unwinding. And it, I mean, it really sort of shows the, shows their, it's shown their hand, hasn't it? Yes. They're, they're sort of like, what a big deal that was for them that they're willing to hold up the entire budget for this, for this issue. Yeah, this is a moment when there is no question of, you, um, can, you know, unintended, the unintended consequences of good intentions. Yeah. This is not good intentions. Yeah, that's, that's something else. But even, um, you, you mentioned this one report in the UK that sort of prompted this, this discussion. And even, uh, you know, again, you set out in the book, even in the UK, where that policy was put in place, and uh, you know, with with the full intention of curbing these practices, antibiotic use stayed roughly the same. They, it, it's um, it dipped down for several years, but within about five years, you can look in the British Medical Journal and see editorials asking things like. Why has Swan failed? Because antibiotic use was creeping back, mm. and this, this, you know, this, this creeping back to a status quo happens over and over again. After the European Union um, passed its ban on growth promoters at the end of 20, 2005, the Netherlands was particularly concerned about antibiotic resistance emerging from agriculture because it had had a very shocking outbreak of um, livestock MRSA, pig MRSA, which they had not expected. You know, they thought their hospitals were very clean, their farms were very clean, nothing like this would ever happen there. And, and so they, they very much welcomed the European rules. But then after a couple of years, they noticed that 
drug-resistant foodborne infections were not trending down in the country, which they should have been. And they went back and they looked at their antibiotic sales records. They happened to do very good tracking in the Netherlands. And they discovered that even though things that were labeled growth promoters had fallen out of the market out of 2006, the actual amount of antibiotic being sold for farm use in that country had not changed at all. All that had changed was that manufacturers had changed the labels to make them safe under the new regulations, but, but no antibiotic had actually come out of the farms. In response to that, the Netherlands became one of the few countries on the planet that put in additional really hard, not regulations exactly, because this was a, a, a compact agreed to by the Ministry of Agriculture and the farming production groups, but they've taken more than... Their agricultural antibiotic use now is between 60 and 70% less than it was in 2010. I mean, that's a huge. Immense. Just, it's Immense. enormous. They really are a model for much of the rest of the world. So in, in those instances where, sort of, you know, before those measures were put in place, where farmers and presumably sort of vets, you know, the veterinary sort of industry supporting them were following the letter of the law but not the spirits you know I suppose you'd say um, do you think that that is sort of inevitable with the commercial interests that, that are in place how and are we still in that situation now where you know these, these measures that have been put in place in in the states the measures, measures that are sort of broadly in Europe mm -hmm. are we um, are we still in that same situation where they can be gamed a bit? Yeah, so what I think those those stories tell us is that constant vigilance is required. Um, that we cannot ever assume that just because we passed a regulation, and I don't want, want to make it sound like that is an easy thing to do because it's a profound political struggle to get any kind of legislative control over something like this. But once the legislative control is enacted, you have to keep eyes on it to make sure people don't try to game it. And what that takes is two things, really three things maybe. Um, it takes uh, it takes personnel to do it, so you have to have alert veterinarians and public health scientists. It takes surveillance, so you've got to have data gathering of what's going on on farms, what are veterinarians doing, what are the companies selling, and behind that you've got to have government funding to make all those things happen. So if there's not, a, that, that's a scenario of needing political will, not only to create something, but to sustain something. And we're really talking here about, you know, what are the long-term consequences? And as a species, we tend to go over the short term, over the long term, almost every time. So maybe we could sort of move uh, slightly slightly sort of aware of time I'd love to kind of there's, there's lots more that I want to kind of you know ask you about because the, the the book is full of full of stuff that we could talk about for ages but um I suppose maybe I'd like to talk a bit about what what can be done sort of what is still to be done what um by sort of industry as a whole and by individuals mm -hmm. and you know perhaps particularly with with sort of a view to this audience with people you know people who are at some position within the food industry um what what measures are you hoping might be put in place mm -hmm. if, if the situation is not perfect now what would you like to see so the the answer is that the details of the answer are different for every country but i think the broad strokes are the same um you know in in the united states i'm asking people to look on labels, for instance, for the chicken they buy, to see, does it say raised without antibiotics or no antibiotics ever? Those are, are claims that actually have for, legal force in the United States. Unlike words like, you know, natural, which doesn't, or healthy, those have no legal force whatsoever. Here in the UK, it's a little more complicated precisely because you do have that control of growth promoters that you agreed to as being part of the European Union back at the end of, of 2005. But there still is an awful lot of preventive antibiotic use going on in British meat animal raising. Now, um, there are some organizations. Uh, one is the um, 
it's the Responsible Use of Medicines or Medications something, R-U-M-A is the acronym, I should know what it is, that actually has been working with um, uh, producers to try to get them to get their preventive antibiotic use down. And there's a coalition called the Alliance to Save Our Antibiotics, which is made <clears throat> up of several um, animal welfare organizations led Sustain by... Sustain is one of those. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And um, Compassion and World Farming yes, has yeah. been very strong on this issue as well. That have been that and, and what all of those organizations are doing is trying to move agriculture as much as possible toward minimal antibiotic use, toward antibiotic use that is on, that only happens when animals are actually sick, um, and not for preventive use. Where that takes you pretty quickly is to toward animals that have better lives. Because if you're going to take the, sort of the artificial support of antibiotics out of farming, what you need instead is better husbandry practices. So animals that are allowed to exercise, if they're not fully free range, then at least they have some outdoor access, that have better diets that don't include rendered protein of other animals, which in the United States has been happening quite frequently with chicken. About half of the mass of a chicken is not edible to humans, and it gets sold into rendering and, and turned into sort of sterilized edible protein. Um, that, that puts a high metabolic load on the birds, and so a more natural diet is something that challenges their immune systems less. Um, allowing animals to have, you know, sunlight and to, to literally live longer lives. The, the average industrial chicken only lives 42 days. And, and to have a chicken that lives 50 or 80 or 100 days is, is better for the chicken. It's a more enjoyable life and it renders a tastier bird. So I ask people, um, within the constraints of whatever the labeling is in the jurisdiction where they are, to, to ask questions about whether any antibiotic use has happened. And then to ask questions about what is the specific, what, what if any labeling guarantees are there under their particular local schemes for um, higher welfare or better living or something like that animal. Because um, all of those, the, all of those designations, um, kind of, they involve less antibiotic and other better husbandry practices within them. Now, and I read a statistic just the other day that out of all the chickens produced in the UK, and which which is getting to be a lot of chicken, almost I think a billion chickens a year, if I have that right, um, uh, only about ten percent of them are actually higher welfare birds. So there's a long way to go. Um, even though England had that very early success in, in curbing antibiotics, there have been a lot of other aspects of industrialization in the meat animal system that really could be dialed back. Um, and I suppose, I think there's well, a couple of questions, but one, one was um, where organic might sort of sit within that. I think you said in the book that it sort of overlaps, not exactly, but but is a, is a pretty good guide. Is that something you'd recommend? So I have to confess that I am not fully up on the the specifics of the British organic rules, and I need right. to look that up since I'm here in the UK <laughs> for a while. In the United States, for instance, um, uh, a bird can be organic and still have been given antibiotics on day zero, that is when it's still in the shell, yeah. or on the first day that it's hatched. And the reason that that exists is to protect um, birds from getting sick as they, as they are transported from the hatchery to the farm where they're going to grow. I don't know if you have that loophole here in the UK or not. I had a conversation just yesterday with a very prominent um, owner of a, um, a set of uh, healthy food restaurants uh, who complained that it's very hard for them to buy organic chickens because within the British organic rules there's a, a rule for the chickens having to have lived a certain number of days and that what he wanted to do instead was to serve younger birds that were higher welfare um, that he could find a market for those that would not because they were not officially organic they uh, they might have been raised to organic standards but they hadn't yet received the organic certification because they weren't old enough right. and he wanted to buy them before they got the certification because then the price would be cheaper so um so i need to look that up mm. okay and but just in december um december just gone the, the three uk supermarkets started publishing the um figures for the amount of antibiotics used in their farm suppliers and uh 
I was just going to ask whether or not that was there was something sort of similar in the in the states, but I guess I guess with the um, no antibiotics ever actually sort of having a, a designation, a sort of legal a legal force, there might not be the. So the, the need interesting for thing it. about the states is that um, the the change there has <clears throat> actually come at the level of the poultry producers. So the big companies mm-hmm. started by by Purdue Chicken, which you know kind of shocked the rest of its industry in 2014 by announcing it was going antibiotic free. They have now been followed by every oh. chicken producer in the United States of any size, except for one. There's one kind of defiant holdout that says that antibiotic free raising is a gimmick. So since um, you know, since chicken is flowing from those producers to the supermarkets, it's really been the producers that have kind of set the trend. But I do remember um, uh, that that moment you're talking about when that those first reports came out of the, the supermarkets, and kind of unsurprisingly, it was the numbers in the well that actually released their mm. numbers, and the ones that were doing less well all kind of hung back. Um, I believe that if, you know, certainly among the top three and possibly the top one is Waitrose, which has not only has a very good record in not buying um, poultry in particular that is raised with the routine use of antibiotics, but also has very complete corporate plans for how they're, they're changing their supply chain. Um, they are definitely good actors in this space. Okay. And I suppose as to think about this sort of food production people, you know, the chefs and, and managers and what have you that might be listening, is there a kind of a piece they can, a way they can help perhaps with education if mm-hmm. you're, because they, this one of the things that you talk about in, in the book and it really sort of, in, sort of really paint the picture is the, the just the, dis, the difference in the experience of eating a bird right. raised in this way and you sort of, you know, but sort of, that's something you have to kind of take people on a journey with you perhaps, you know, to sort of explain that there's a sort of, the taste is different, that the meat is darker. That, that, yes, just know, that to make the point now yeah. that I do, in fact, eat chicken in case people haven't picked that up yet. <laughs> and the first and last scenes <laughs> of the book are me stuffing my face with delicious chicken in France and then in New York. But so the, the thing that I think, I mean, the thing that I think we all forget, and it goes back to that that problem of, you know, worrying about which light bulb you're buying while watching the polar bears drown, is that I think that we all feel as though we have very little power to affect what corporations do. And maybe we do if we're all just buying a single meal, but there are a lot of us buying meals. You know, we all get to vote with our our household food funds three times a day for the kind of food system that we want. And so I am in, if it comes to what chefs can do, of course they can change their supplying, right? They can change their buying habits. Um, And... And they can be talking to whoever their middlemen are. You know, if they're if they're if they're the kind of high-end chef that is fortunate enough to have direct relationships with farmers, they've probably already got this sorted, right? They already know where they're getting their birds or other animals from. But if they're the kind of sort of mid-range chef where they have a supplier that's collecting things and bringing them to the the restaurant or to many restaurants, then they need to be having conversations with their supply chain about exactly what are the details of the places where um, these where these animals are coming from. To what degree have farmers committed to XYZ about how their animals are raised? And then those chefs need to be communicating this to their customers. I mean, I think one of the benefits of sort of the, the modern food movement as, you know, people kind of often sound annoyed about how many questions we want to ask about our food. We want to have these very lengthy conversations with servers about, you know, was it a happy chicken? And, you know, how long did the carrots live? And, um, and de- it's easy to caricature that, and it's, it certainly can get annoying. But I really think that people have a, a profound appetite to know more about their, how their food is produced. And chefs can play a really important role in that, in communicating, not just communicating at a, sort of at a top end, that say, you know, saying to their, their customers in their public utterances, this is what my group, my, you know, my restaurant or my group is committed to. But they can also do it on the menu, and they can do it by training their servers to say to people at the point of ordering their dinner when they get, get their menu, um, this is 
these are the kind of animals we've decided to buy, and this is why we think this is important. Because as you know, this whole question of antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance is very murky for a lot of people. I mean, look, it's taken us an hour to figure out how to to um, kind of package it in a way that will make it understandable for your listeners. It's a hard thing, and um, so I think a lot of chefs and food companies kind of back away from it, not because they're not interested, but because they don't know how to explain it simply. But one of the things that helps you explain it simply is practice. And so the more that chefs can talk to their staffs and, and staffs can talk to customers about um, what it is that they're doing and why they think it's important, the easier this will get. Okay, well, there's a challenge for, for everyone listening that that applies to. Um, We'll just draw this to a close, I think. I, I always ask just a couple more just general questions of all of my guests. So I'll ask you just a quick one, because we, we do need to wrap it up pretty quickly. Um, if you could pick up the phone and talk to your 20-year-old self, what might you say to her? You know, when I was 20 years old, um, I was very caught up, as women are when they're 20 years old, about how little I could get away with eating, right? I was obsessed with, with being thin and eating too little. And inevitably, that means that you're eating in a very unhealthy way. So what I would say to my 20-year-old self is just to trust food. Trust your that your, your relationship, the relationship your body wants to have with food is intrinsically a healthy one if you just allow it to be. Uh, that's fantastic advice, I think, for everybody. And um, I think we will leave it there. Thank you very much for your time, Mary. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. I really did. Did you, do you want, I mean, for anybody who's listening and, um, you know, sort of wants to take this further, obviously the book, I suppose, would be the first. Right. Protocol. So they should look for um, Plucked, the book, um, which is available wherever books are sold and also on amazon.co.uk. Um, you do not have to buy both Plucked and Big Chicken. Someone told me today they were going to do that. The books are substantially the same. Um, if they would like to know more about me and my work, uh, my site is marinmckenna.com. And there is a site that contains all of the... Um, all of the sound files about the book and the interviews I've done about the book and the excerpts, and that is bigchickenthebook.com. And they can find me on Twitter, where I'm far too talkative, at MarinMCK. MarinMCK. All right, brilliant. I will, I will put all those links in the show notes for this and um, you know send it out in all the normal ways. But thank you, really, again, for your, your time and you know sitting down with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.